0: Uh, We're looking at Exodus chapter 9, verse 8 through 35. So Exodus 9, 8 through 35. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. And Festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on people and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says Let my people go, so they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose. That I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring in your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter. Because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that hail will fall over all Egypt, on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everywhere in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I've gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's, but I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and the spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out to the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord, and thunder, the thunder and hail stopped. The rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. Father, we pray that our hearts would not be hard. We pray that your word would soften our hearts, split our hearts open, convict us of our sin, and show us Jesus. Show us you who are God over all the earth, whose name is to be proclaimed in every corner of the earth. Speak, O Lord, we ask you. Speak to us now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, earlier this week, I was browsing through the Scholastic uh, book catalog, which if you have kids in the local schools, you probably get these as well. Uh, they hand them out several times throughout the school year, and usually they have a, a book fair where you can go to the school and, and see all kinds of books and, and buy ones for either the classroom or for yourself. But this year it was just the catalog and you ordered everything online. So uh, we told each kid at the end of the school year, you can pick one book uh, that we'll buy for you to read. And so I had grabbed Luke and he was sitting in my lap and we were browsing through the preschool books uh, so he could pick one. And so I I opened up the page and immediately he pointed and he said, I want Paw Patrol. And I was trying to figure out what he meant. And I looked down and there I saw it. Paw Patrol, Water Wonder, Pup Save, a Pinata. Certainly a classic. (laughs) But then he looked a little bit more and he said, oh, I want Baby Shark. And there I found it. Baby Shark and the Balloons book. Sounds life-changing. Now There were a bunch of other books on the list, but he didn't even see any of them. He loves Paw Patrol. He loves watching those episodes. He knows all the characters, and so he wants the Paw Patrol book. And he's seen every Baby Shark version there is, and he loves to sing it. And so he wants the Baby Shark book. And as I thought about that, it revealed something that I thought was interesting that shows us about who we are and what it means to worship. When something captures your attention, whether you're a just-turned-three-year-old or a 39-year-old or a 59-year-old, When something captures your attention, when it brings you joy, you want more of it. You want things that are related to it. you shape your life around it. You want to get the jersey or the book or the stuffed animal, right? Marketers have long known this, right? If if a movie is popular, they have the whole equation worked out. Well, we need to make sure there's a book series to go along with it and plush toys and t-shirts and a video game and all the other stuff that we can sell right along with it because people can't get enough. And this isn't necessarily bad. But it shows us again, I think, something about who we are as humans. We were made to worship things. We were made to worship, to proclaim the goodness of what we love. When something brings you joy, when it gives you a sense of transcendence, you want to tell others about it. You want to spend time thinking about it. Three-year-olds do it for Baby Shark. Uh, Teens do it for Billie Eilish, I'm told. Or uh, others do it for the Utah Jazz. Eventually, you get to that point in your life where a new vacuum cleaner is the highlight of your month, and you tell everybody about how awesome it is. Uh, Here we go. Now, you might wonder, how does this fit with our passage? But as we've been working through the book of Exodus, I've been struck by how big the theme of worship is. I'd kind of known it, but I'd never really seen it throughout the whole book. In our passage, two sections jumped out at me. First, verse 16. God says to Pharaoh, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All of the plagues are about worship, knowing that God is worthy of worship. And then in verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again, he and his officials hardened their hearts. Pharaoh's heart is made to worship but it refuses to worship the true God. It's like a warped board that as soon as the pressure is off, it bends back into its original shape, bent towards himself and worshiping himself. And so the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? What is shaping your life? We're going to just walk through the passage and then I want to draw a couple applications out from it. So if you remember the kind of general outline of the plagues, we see that there are three plagues that are set kind of in pairs of three, and then the tenth plague is is the culmination of it all. And so last week, Pastor Brian took us through the first two plagues in this second cycle of the plagues. He looked at the, the plague of the flies and the plague of the livestock. And then the third plague, as we see, it never comes with a warning, but Moses just does it. It's kind of like a surprise punch at Pharaoh because he refuses to let the people go. And so in the third plague of the second cycle, Moses is to take some soot from the brick kilns and come before Pharaoh, throw it up into the air, and it will become like a fine dust that causes boils to break out over everybody's skin. Now, this it struck me as, you know, especially since September 11th, we've all been worried about things like chemical bi- and biological attacks, right, or, or dirty bombs. Here is kind of like the first chemical biological weapon, and it happened long before we had gas masks and hazmat suits and stuff like that to keep us from catching the disease. But then notice also there's something of a poetic justice here. Maybe your translation translates the furnace as kilns, right? These were uh, furnaces used for making bricks. And who made the bricks? Well, it was the Israelites who had been enslaved and making bricks around the clock. And now the soot from those bricks is coming back around to haunt the Egyptians, And for the first several plagues, we saw Moses would do his plague and then the Egyptian magicians would kind of march out and try to recreate it. But in verse 11, we're told they were in such pain from the boils that they couldn't even get out of their beds, right? They couldn't appear before Moses. We see as the plagues continue, it's like they're slowly circling and getting closer and closer to Pharaoh and his associates. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he wouldn't listen. He didn't budge. So then we kick off the seventh plague, which brings kind of the the third of this three-part cycle. God says, get up first thing in the morning, which is how that first one always kicks off, and confront Pharaoh and tell him that line that we've kind of gotten used to by this point. Let my people go so they may worship me. But then it adds, this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and your officials and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. It's this theme of worship, that I am worthy of worship. We could even see the plagues in some ways as worship wars. Who is worthy of worship? Who is God over everything? And and as we've said, Pharaoh has been demanding that the Israelites worship him. He's a jealous God. He doesn't want them having divided intentions. He wants them to worship him through their brick making. He's like their God, dictating their schedules, their work, all these functions of their worship. And God is coming in and saying, Pharaoh, you're you're in the wrong place, buddy. I am the only one worthy of worship. So God goes on to say, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. The plagues of this escalating battle or, or chess match of, of who is greater. You might read this and it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. Like, is God saying he's just toying with Pharaoh like a, like a toddler toys with a worm? But but no, it's more than that. It's about showing who is worthy of all worship, who is worthy of your affections, your desire, who gets to set Israel's calendar, who gets to tell them what to do, how to do it, when to do it, who gets to set their agenda. But it's not just for Israel, this is also for Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you're not the object of everybody's worship. The, 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 The Egyptian nation is not there just to worship you. There is a God that even you should worship because of his greatness. But it's not just for Pharaoh. The whole world is God's stage. And he's saying, I am a God that is so great that I control even the very elements of this world. I am worthy of all worship from all people. Now, again, when we think of worship, we tend to think of it in this narrow sense, right, of an hour and a half on, on Sunday. But th- that is true, and that worship is important. Th- this worship, in some sense, sets the heartbeat and the pace for the rest of the worship throughout the week, because worship is the natural response to what your heart sees as beautiful or worthy, what it is worth changing your life for. Everybody worships. You can be an atheist, and, and it means that you don't worship God anymore, but you still are worshiping other things. So out very practically, right? Like you start dating someone and they love to exercise. Now, you hate to exercise, but you so love them that you go quickly and buy some running shoes and start running and act like running is your new favorite hobby, not because you like it, but because you think, well, they're worthy. I want their affection. I want them to like me, right? That is a form of worship. Youth sports, many folks have, have noted how sports have taken on many similarities to worship. They dominate your weekends. You adjust your schedule to the game schedule. You dress up for the events. You gather together in crowds to watch it. You make sacrifices to get your kids to the events and the games, it's a very demanding religion. We all worship. The question is, what is it that we're worshiping? Every one of you, you are shaping your lives around the things that you think are worthy And a major theme in Exodus is that God and God alone is worthy of life-altering worship. And we're going to circle back to that here in a moment. So God threatens in this next plague to send a hailstorm, but he also gives them some advice. He says, hey, just letting you know, bring in all the livestock, bring in all the laborers, the stuff that's setting out so it won't be ruined. Now, it's kind of like, I was thinking with, many of you know we got a new dog uh, this year, right? And, and we warn our kids all the time. In fact, that Barbie that I pulled out was a victim of this hailstorm called Wyatt, right? We tell our kids, don't leave your shoes out. Don't leave your toys out. Wyatt will chew them up, right? And most of the time, they don't listen to us. And it's the same here. Why does God give this warning? Well, it seems to be a sign of, of mercy. He says, I don't want to see unnecessary destruction. Your people have suffered enough. Please take this little bit of advice. Moses is a meteorologist, and he's just predicted the worst hailstorm Egypt has seen in its 2,000-year history. I mean, imagine that. We talk about sometimes like a a, a a once-a-century flood or a 500-year flood, right? a a flood that is so bad that it only comes around every 500 or so years. This is a whole new category, a hailstorm so bad it's only come around once every 2,000 or so years. Years, like the, the last time a hailstorm of this bad came around was when Jesus was here. Right? But, but God, to follow God's warning would come at a cost for the Israelites, or sorry, the Egyptians. It, it, if you jump down to verse 31, we see that it was harvest time. That's why some of the crops were destroyed. And those of you who grew up on a farm, you know better than I do, that when it's harvest time, there aren't enough hours in the day to bring in all the crops. You're worried about bad weather spoiling it. You're worried about the crop spoiling by staying too long on the stock or the vine. And so the Egyptians are faced with kind of this conundrum, right? Do we stop harvesting, lose those days, and risk losing bringing in the rest of the crops? Or do we basically ignore the warning and keep harvesting but risk losing everything? Do we... Do we Do we follow what God says and and, and risk this, or do we go with what what Pharaoh says and and risk this other thing? This brings out another aspect of worship, one that maybe we don't think about so much. Worship is trusting God's word to let it dictate your own actions. What words are you letting shape your life? And remember, there is this organic connection between worship and work. These things are intricately intertwined. Work is a form of worship, and whoever controls when and where and how you work is, in one sense, acting as your God. But then personally, for Pharaoh, this was a great test. Right? I mean, think about it, if you're in Pharaoh's shoes, okay, should I give this order or not? Should I tell everyone, Pharaoh says, bring everything in, because if Pharaoh does that, he's admitting what? He believes God's word. He's showing a submission to God and indicating, I don't have any ability to stop this coming storm. So will he give the order and spare his people and animals, but implicitly admit Yahweh is God? Or will he refuse to give the order even at the expense of his people? And by this point, it should come no surprise. Pharaoh is more than willing to sacrifice his people because of his own pride because of an unwillingness to say Yahweh is God. Pharaoh will not worship the God of the Hebrews. But then others there, you know, they hear this and it seems like word gets out and so some people go and take those precautions. And so the hail comes. And I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a bad hailstorm. We don't seem to get real bad hailstorms here. Where I grew up in Colorado, it was like a feature of every summer. I mean, homes would be ruined by hailstorms. I remember one time as a kid, We were driving through Denver, and just in the afternoon, we would get these thunderstorms, and out of nowhere, it just starts raining down huge balls of hail. It felt like kids were throwing rocks at our minivan, and my mom told all of us kids to put blankets over our heads, right, in case the windows broke, and I remember peeking out of the blanket and looking like every third car that we passed was missing at least one windshield because of these huge pieces of hail coming down. Fortunately, our windshield was spared, our car wasn't. It was totaled. It looked like it was as dimpled as a golf ball from all of the hail. But hail can devastate. And so all the crops out in the field, the mature crops were destroyed, the trees were stripped. People and animals were killed by the force of these ice balls hitting them at 60 miles an hour. But like last week, God spared his people from devastation. Where the Israelites were, it was, I don't know if it was sunny, but it wasn't hailing. Not only was this gracious, but what did it show? This God takes care of his people, and he can even control where the hail falls. He is that powerful. Now, this gets Pharaoh's attention. So he calls Moses and Aaron and says, Okay, we've messed up. Stop it. Stop the storm. We'll let you go. We've had enough of this. But Moses indicates then later on, the next couple of verses, you don't really fear the Lord. I mean, this isn't real repentance. I mean, so many folks are, are willing to say when they've messed up, particularly if they get caught, Oh, I, 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 I've sinned. But so often it's more because you're ashamed of getting caught or you're ashamed of the consequences of your sin more than actually a heart being broken at what you've done. And we could even relate it back to worship. True repentance is your heart turning From those things that you've been pursuing and turning back to God. But Pharaoh's repentance isn't a change of heart, but more just wanting to avoid the pain. But Moses says, all right, well, I'll take it on face value. When I leave the city, I'll pray for the storm to end. Now, just picture this scene, right? This is a pretty gutsy move on Moses' part because the hail is still coming down at this point. Like The the storm is raging and Moses says, hey, I'm going to go walk out in the field and pray. It's kind of like in the spring or summertime here where we get just one of those kind of freak rainstorms, right? Like you you left for the store and it was sunny and beautiful, so you didn't think to take a raincoat. And then when you get out of the store, it is just pouring down rain, right? And what do you do? You either wait for the storm to pass over or you make a mad dash to the car and hope you don't get soaked. What does Moses do? He walks out into the storm and says, this looks like a good place to pray. And there he prays. For the storm to end. And Moses is showing this confidence in God's care and control even over hail balls, right? He, he is in control of where every single piece of hail lands and Moses trusts that he's not going to get killed by one of those pieces of hail like maybe some of those bodies lying around him were. Do you show that kind of confidence in God? That every piece of hail even lands right where God wants it. Well, then the storm ends, it gets sunny out, and Pharaoh says, hey, deal's off. Pressure's off, deal's off. And this theme that we see recurring is that, with Pharaoh, true repentance, you know, false repentance only lasts as long as the pressure's on. True repentance lasts longer than the consequences. It's motivated more by a heart conviction than outward pressure. And so our passage passage ends like so many before. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said. I want to weave some of these themes together and apply them to us. The thing that struck me about these plagues here and the wording is we see something like a worship war. Who is worthy of worship? Is it Pharaoh or God? Pharaoh wants to be worshipped. He wants what God says is going to happen to him. Pharaoh wants his name to be proclaimed throughout all the earth. And God says, no, I'm the one who's really powerful. I am the one who's worthy of my name being proclaimed throughout the earth. But Pharaoh won't relent. He says, no, no, no. I won't admit that God's name is worthy. Pharaoh is addicted to himself. And when it looks like he does relent, he says, oh, I have sinned. We discover that wasn't really a heart change, but Pharaoh is just, in some ways, learning a new way that he thinks he can manipulate this God. Oh, I can manage God by acting like I'm sorry. And when the pressure's off, I can go back to my old ways. I mean, how many of us have done that? How many of you you have seen that, right? You, You aren't really sorry, but you know if you act really sorry, the pressure will be off, and then you can get away with it maybe in a couple months. And don't we live that same way? How many of us are trying to manage God How many of you are doing a bunch of things that maybe look like religious things, good things, but are not because you truly love God, but it's because it's part of this unwritten agreement that you've kind of made with God. Hey, God, I'll do these things, and then you better do this stuff. I'll raise my kids this way, and you better ensure they become good Christians. I'll stop drinking or smoking or whatever vice it is that I've got, but you better help me get that good job. I'll read my Bible every day, but you have better fix these relationships. I'll give away a bunch of money, but you better bless this investment. We can do all those things that from the outside, they look good, and yet our heart does not love God. We're trying to control God. We don't love him. We aren't worshiping God, but we see God as this other tool in our belt that we can pull out to help get the things that we really want, to help our life look more like our dreams. We don't love God, we use God for our own agendas, and we're so good at convincing ourselves, oh, this must be God's agenda too. But our heart is far from him. And Exodus shows us that God alone is worthy of all worship. He's worthy of laying down all those things that you're pursuing for and saying, God, I only want you It goes back to his purpose in verse 16, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, unlike so many other gods out there, things that we worship, this God cannot be controlled by your sacrifices you make for him. He can't be managed by your good deeds. He can't be tricked by your lavish displays of devotion and your great stories of all the things that you've done for him. You can't just submit to him when it's advantageous. Oh, stop the hailstorm. I'm sorry, God but keep your heart far far from him. No, God wants and deserves and alone is worthy of the deepest desires and affections of your heart. You don't serve him to get what you want. You serve him because you see you are worthy, God. You are worthy and that is enough. He alone is worthy of changing your schedule, your priorities, and even your dreams for now I was struck this week as I was wrestling in my own heart like how many of our problems boil down to worship problems. I was reading Psalm 135 when it just it struck me. It says the idols of the nations are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear and mouths but cannot breathe. Now we might not set up idols like the ancient people did, but make no mistake, you are spending your days worshiping something. What dictates your schedule? What dominates your daydreams and your thought life? That is what you're worshiping. When you have a few moments and just pull your phone out out of habit, what do you always look at? That's tied to what you really value in your heart. What things does your mind just automatically kind of slide towards thinking about, where it's not hard to think about, where you find yourself obsessing about this thing? What incident do you keep replaying over and over in your head? Those are the things that you are actually worshiping. And what happens when we worship anything besides the God who is worthy? Psalm 135 five eight. And those who make idols are just like them, as are all who trust in them. We've talked about this before. You will become like what you worship. And so has it ever occurred to you, said so I was deeply convicted of it this, this week, that all the time that you spend replaying that scene in your head that's been frustrating you, or that thing that you continually obsess over, or maybe you act out in your mind this conversation and, and thinking, man, I wish I had said this. or I wish I could say that to that person. That's worship. That's an act of worship. And that is worship that is changing you into those things. It isn't any wonder right, that we don't have more joy, that we are so com- filled with so much complaining and cynical uh, lies that we, we don't express love and joy It is because we spend so many hours in our day in thoughts and actions with things that are sucking the life out of us. You replaying that conversation that you had with a coworker or your spouse or or parent over and over in your head, that's your worship service. And it's changing your heart. You holding on to that hurt from that person from maybe years ago, but you refuse to let it go. That's worship, and it's making you like it. It's rotting your joy, and Pharaoh is the prime example of that. His obsession with himself is what leads to his downfall. It so warps his soul inward that he can't see anybody else's pain. He can't see anything else, and with eyes wide open, he leads his whole people to the bottom of the sea. That is the result of a life that worships anything besides the life-giving God. So where is your worship leading you? Look at your heart. What is outflowing from it? Trace that back to what you are worshiping, and I guarantee it's connected. And what we need so much in our lives is to reform our worship, It starts with with Sunday and being present and engaged in worship. That sets the trajectory for the rest of our life, but then it works its way out in those hundreds of times every day with what your mind is drawn to and what your heart obsesses over. And to direct your worship to anything besides God, it makes you like it. which It sucks your life away. It turns you into a hollow person. And the only way to change is to direct your worship, your heart, your mind to the one who is pure beauty, pure glory, pure grace, the one who is life itself. And when you turn your face to behold him, he breathes life into your soul. To worship God is to let him dictate your whole schedule, your desires your plans, to give him your dreams, to offer your life to him and let him break you and remake you in his ways. And here's the beauty of it. God doesn't stand there looking down at you, waiting for you to get your act together, to stop obsessing about yourself or all these things and then start worshiping him and say, okay, I'll I'll help this guy out. No, friends, God has come to exactly where you are. That when you were wrapped up in yourself, he broke into your life. When you were panting for more stuff in this world, he gave you a taste of the honey of heaven. When you were addicted to your sin, he let you drink of the waters of life. When you were feeding on the junk food of this earth, he offered you the fresh bread of life. When for every one thought, passing thought you had about him, you have five about yourself. You were on his mind from before the beginning of time. He loved you while you were still a sinner. Jesus has come to exactly where you are in your sin, in your self-addiction, in your warped worship, to break you out from those cycles and to open your eyes to the beauty that he is. And he calls your name. And he says, come and drink of me. And to give you what you could never do on your own. Give you his life and his righteousness. And friends, do you see how much he loves you? He sees your sin. He sees your need. He knows how screwed up your thought life is. He knows how messed up all these things are that you try to keep hidden from everybody. He knows how obsessed you are about yourself. He knows how much you constantly mess up. And he says, I love you. Come to me. Look to him, gaze into his face, fix your eyes on him, and worship your king. He is your firm foundation. As one old hymn puts it, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Friends, fix your eyes on Christ. And as you worship him, you will watch your life take on his shape. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would break in to our lives that are bent in towards ourselves, that can't get out of ourselves, that are addicted to ourselves, and show us your beauty. Father, let the story of Pharaoh be a warning to us all of where our life will lead, unless you change us from the inside out. Please do this, God, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.